Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 100. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we're recording my end of this, our first interview episode in Austin, Texas. Our guest today is Eric Yanis, host of another solo history pod, the Other States of America History podcast. And we're recording his end from a secure, undisclosed location in upstate New York. For those few of you who are new to this podcast, we're telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. I'll let Eric tell you about the other States of America History podcast. Suffice it to say that the other States has also been working its way through the pre-colonial and early colonial era in North America. Eric focuses on specific historical lines, such as New Netherland or New France, rather than staying to sort of broad chronological order as I do. His episodes are full of the sort of detail I love, so I'm super excited that Eric agreed to be my guinea pig, as it were, in this first interview episode of the History of the Americans podcast. So with that, as Sam Harris would say, I bring you Eric Giannis. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for... Yeah. Undisclosed location. You you could disclose how you want, but that's when I. Well, I think all of upstate New York is an undisclosed location, but I'm in a Boston spa thereabouts. Yep. All right. I know exactly where it is. I uh, have a, I have a cousin who lives in Saratoga Springs and uh, get there about once a summer. We have a place in the Adirondacks and uh, some of, some of uh, our listeners have heard me report record from a secure undisclosed location outside of Tupper Lake which is even more obscure than uh Boston Spa I guess. You you make upstate New York sound like it's Baffin Island or like somewhere Barrow Alaska or something that's like so far well, away you know, from there, humanity. There, there, there's, Sometimes there's it is. upstate and there's upstate, right? There's there's all the cool kids in Rhinebeck for oh, yeah, example yeah. and then and then uh and then yeah, you, yeah. yeah and then Plattsburgh. and then there's yeah, it's another it's totally thing. another thing. So why don't you um, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and um, how you got the idea for the other states, which I'm going to shorthand it as the other states. And um, yeah, I think you'll recognize it and uh, and so forth. Well, I got started in podcasting. It was during COVID. I was teaching social studies at a very small school. And, of course, COVID shut everything down. And there was about six weeks where they wouldn't allow us to teach new material. And the reasoning was that we had kids with special needs based on their IEPs and their 504s. And teaching remotely, we didn't yet have the ability to meet those needs. And therefore, essentially, we were leaving ourselves open to liability. So for about six weeks, I had to just keep grinding away at the same stuff I had already been teaching. And they made the teaching asynchronous, which means you can just show up whenever the lesson will be sitting there for you and grades disappeared. So as you can imagine, I wasn't doing very much teaching and the kids weren't yeah. doing very much learning. I did some cool music videos. You know, we, we did have some good times, but it, it ultimately was um, it broke my stride because a social studies teacher come March is usually steamrolling ahead, usually to get to an end date. Right. So I had a regions class. I need to get to the end of the regions curriculum. They're going to be taking a test. That affects my performance review. It affects them greatly, too, graduating. But even at the middle school grades, like seventh grade in New York State, I have to get through the Civil War. So by March, I'm chugging along, and COVID just threw a, just, you know, a kink in the armor. It just stopped everything dead in its tracks. 
I still had things I wanted to say. It was all me. It was all ego-driven, basically. But I had also been working on this project on New Netherland for a very long time. It's just based on like my own family history and background. And that splintered off into the fact that I was interested in all of these strange entities that almost barely touch get touched on in the history books. You're in Texas right now, but honestly, up here in New York, a lot of people don't know very much about the Republic of Texas. They just don't. And then forget it about the, the Spanish and then Mexican period in Texas history. It's not even it's not even a blip in their radar. They have no idea what you're talking about. And and but that extends well, all I was throughout. Say, the, yeah? the Texas thing is fascinating because here, uh, because uh, Texas is Texas. Yeah. Well, it's all consuming. A, um, in fact, uh, in the seventh grade, kids spend the entire year learning Texas history, and and I I really yeah. uh, I learned this partly because my uh, mother-in-law and my second marriage is a Texas history was a Texas history teacher. Um, but the other thing that, that cropped up is, is, is I, you know, as I was digging through stuff and I came across the story of the Narvaez expedition in Cabeza de Vaca, I, I, qu- yeah, I, I, I listened I, to that I quickly one. quickly figured out that, 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 that's a fun one. Everyone in Texas knows who Cabeza de Vaca is if they went through the public school here. I mean, you can chat with a bartender. He's like, oh yeah, Cabeza de Vaca. And outside of Texas, it's an actually ridiculously obscure story considering how cool it is. So anyway, go on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a social studies teacher. Maybe not the best one in the world, but I had no... That isn't a name that I have slotted in my brain with a specific factor area or anything. Just from the name, I would guess, you know, if it's in American history, the Southwest, the South somewhere, because obviously there's yeah. a Spanish connection there. But yeah, it's just not known. Texas is just its own world. Honestly, I'm a little scared of when I get up to the Texas Republic. I think I'm going to front load and just be like, if you live in Texas, this is not for you. You already know all of this and probably more. This is for somebody who lives in Alaska. This is for somebody who lives in Massachusetts because they don't know anything about the Texas Republic, for example. And Alaska, like Russian Alaska, a lot of people don't know anything about that. And so it just splintered off from there. And it was like, I'm really interested in these small little stories, these different colonies, um, you know, runaway republics, the Vermont Republic. I think it has done a lot to carve who we are as a nation today. And I think that's been not a little, maybe a little underplayed, but also it's not terribly important sometimes. And, you know, in our textbooks, we tend to focus on a constitutional history. And so like the Vermont Republic doesn't really fold into that story quite as much. So it gets kind of edited out. It's not really part of the narrative of what we're testing for in New York State, which is fine because you can't teach everything, but I can. Given, given a microphone and unlimited time. How did you get involved in podcasting? It was like a post-retirement. Yeah, well, I, I, I uh, retired from uh, job job in uh, November of 2018. I spent my career, started as a lawyer, yeah. spent my career in biotech and med tech. And I, I still do oh, that's right. yeah, I still do consulting do. and that kind of stuff. But um, I uh, uh, found it hard to really do much of that and didn't really want to once the pandemic hit. And I sort of uh, spent, you know, the first six months reading scientific papers and doom scrolling like a lot of people who weren't trying to hold their lives together during the pandemic. And uh, my wife, who's a psychotherapist, was swamped because everybody was very anxious, falling apart. Falling apart. Um, uh, But... um, in in September and October of uh, 2020, 
I uh, took a test and uh, wanted to go visit my mom who lives in Charlottesville. And I, I sort of bubbled up and, and, and ended up going on what was about a four and a half thousand mile solo road trip that took me from Austin eventually all the way to Tupper Lake uh, and back. And I started listening actually to David Crowther's History of England podcast, which begins at the beginning. Yeah, and he I've, I've at that a point bit, had yeah. only gotten up to maybe 1610 after doing it like 12 years. And yeah, is and he ended it like recently, no, didn't he? Going. Is he still going? Still I going. think he, he stopped. He he is off. Oh, he he doesn't do timeline episodes quite as often. Um, he does other things, and and I think it's a full time job for him though. Uh, and he does tours and other things. Yeah, well, good for him. He is. He's looking to get everything. Yeah, like he wants everything. You know, yeah. he's one of those guys. Where yeah, it must be complete. I like you, I and I admire that. that. Well, anyway, I just. Um, uh, at some point, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. And, and, and sort of parallel to that, I'd always had – my dad was a professor of history, French history. But I, um, I'd always had the idea that it would be uh, good to read sort of American history in a really structured way. Um, I had, like a lot of people interested in history, I'd read a lot of books at random. So I had parts that I knew well, parts I didn't know at all. Yeah. And uh, – and the more you know, the more you realize, oh, I got a hole here, I got a pocket here, and yeah. it starts to bother yeah. you. No, that's right. And so I, I, um, yeah. I sort of um, dug around, and I couldn't find anyone who was really doing what David Crowther was doing. There's obviously a lot of American history podcasts, but they tend to be either hyper-specialized, yeah. like like the American Revolution podcast, or they tend to be, yeah. you know, individual stories that bounce around. You know, you'll talk about... Yeah, or very general yes. survey, just almost like a yeah. Wikipedia so entry. I, um, I thought I'd start this, and I came back and uh, started reading. And the first thing I did was read three or four books on Jamestown and Plymouth. And over the course of that, I sort of realized, wait, I'm doing it all wrong. Uh, uh, there's this huge thing going on, much as you observed, uh, this, this sort of vast early America, as some scholars now call it, that uh, I hadn't gotten to. So I, I rebooted and I launched it at the beginning of 2021. Uh, and I, I started, as many American history surveys do, but not all, I started with actually Columbus. Well, I started with a couple episodes on, um, on the indigenous peoples in North America before Columbus and I've cycled back to those. And then I did five episodes on Columbus. And then uh, we were off to the races. So anyway, you know, that's how I got going. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I, it's the, still the funnest thing I do. So anyway. Fun? Is that the word you use oh, yeah. to describe I, it? I, 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 uh, I enjoy it a lot. I mean, well, well what, do you, uh, what do you like about it? I don't know. I, honestly, it's almost like because I, I like collecting coins. I have a lot of Me really too, nerdy actually. hobbies. Me too. <laughs> and it's the it's making the making the artwork yeah. of it right. I had, I had a history professor who described the practice of history. It's it's a scholarly art. It's not a science. It's an art. And so you're making a piece of work. You're making something right. I'm making an audio file that's as clean as it possibly can be. That's as research as I'm able to do. But then I'm going to shave it down to make it entertaining. You know, and it's just like I've made this product. Like, I, I like to play a lot of music yeah. and things like that. 
And so I always see things as kind of a, a piece of a work of art. And the thing is, when you're really diving into something artistic, sometimes you move beyond, I'm enjoying this, to like, this, is, this needs to be complete. You know, you get, you get almost egotistical about it. So I like to make something really neat, or I find neat, and just throw it out into the world. And just be like, here, you, you have fun with this. So it's, it's, I don't know. I should probably be having more fun, but I have just like thousands of index cards all around me all the time. Well, why don't you talk, cause, because you, you uh, maybe we should each talk about, but why don't you start? How do you put together an episode or a series of episodes? Like, what's your work method? Yeah, so I mean, if, if you listen to the podcast, you could tell there's some rambling and there, there's some deviation. It's not scripted. Not totally anyway, but basically, I, I mean, you just read an insane amount and you, and you read the right stuff. I'm not taking, you know, I'm not taking you know, just popular books. Actually, every now and then I will read children's history books just to see what kids are being exposed to, because that helps me in, inform me on what I need to fill in and where errors might be and whatnot, especially since I am a, kid, a teacher of yep. middle school social studies and special ed. But yeah, I, I'll just read an insane amount. I'll just read every single thing I get my hand on. And when I, uh, like a small subject like New Sweden, small colony lasted 18 years, maxed out about, around 350 people or so. I'll read everything I possibly can. And I'll just keep reading even after that until I'm literally reading redundant facts. Till I'm like, I've seen this. I've seen this. I've heard yep. this. I know this. To the point where I'm like, I think I got all the blind spots. Because that's the worst part when you put out something and then there's this whole corner on the subject that yep. you never touched. And then you, you, what are you going to do? You know, you missed it. So I will read to exhaustion and then I generate index cards and the index cards go into a, into a, a file, boom, with the subject. And then when I'm ready to do that episode, that subject gets organized by little chapters until I'm down to four or five cards for each heading. Then I take the cards yeah. like this and then I start doing it like this. But in the meantime, I'm ruminating on how to piece together the beginning, the middle and the end. Who the protagonist in the story is, I like to like n nail it yep. down to a certain person. I do feel uncomfortable with like survey episodes where you're just describing, which I have a couple of those, and people seem to like them, but I'm always like, yeah, but there's, there was no one for the audience to connect with. It was just like, uh, one of the ones I did was on early New Netherland before they settled Manhattan, and just the different traders going up and down, and you know, it was just, just kind of airy, and an overview, and setting things up, but, but I like to to nail nail it down to one person which is something i always don't get to do but always don't, don't get to always do. get to do something <laughs> i don't often get to do i don't know there, there's some sets in there so yeah that's that's my method where basically i get it down to like this little chunk and then um by that time i have the cards memorized they're in my head and i use them almost it's just a mnemonic device i go okay that's what we're talking about and i chuck it and i chuck it and i get some sort of satisfaction out of throwing the card like david letterman so this room just ends up covered in index cards and then before my wife can see, I go and I clean them up <laughs> and whatnot. So it's a lot of chaos, but then it's just like thinking about things endlessly, like meticulously to the point where I, the card is just to indicate where I'm picking yeah. up. Well, you're... So, uh, it's, you, it's, there's no you, sense to you it. Know you're, you're, <laughs> very well, different you know your than you. You material better than me, and I'm not, I'm not sure there's a sense in it either, but because I'm sort of a slave to the chronology, I follow a... Um, I sort of follow a mixed... Um, um, uh, a sort of a mixed mode. Um, I think everybody knows I pretty much write, uh, write my scripts and I do deviate from them a little bit as I go along. I'll think of something to toss in. Uh, but, but mostly I write, 
you know, I write about 5,000 words a week. Um, and I um, don't, um, uh, I think, read as widely as you. What I, what I tend to do is read enough that I understand the big themes and and then I I find uh, less a person than maybe a story or an aspect to dig into it. Um, um, mm. I, I probably read less uh, in the original uh, sources and narratives than you do, although I certainly have done a, quite a bit of that. Um, they could be tedious. Yeah, there, um, but I, I think that uh, really good histories that go fairly deep that cover those as, for example, David Hackett Fisher does in Champlain's Dream. Uh, oh, I love yeah. that guy. Um, He's great. You know, um, they they provide an architecture. Uh, and then, um, as you and I talked about when we uh, chatted before, um, I've, I'm fortunate to have access to a bunch of the online um, uh, uh, JSTOR, JSTOR and, uh, and a bunch of the online yeah. searches. So I, I search around and I can often find academic papers that nail a story that I find very interesting. So the episode I just put up on wampum, the backbone of it was a paper I was published in 2011 uh, that sort of detailed this, you know, triangular or quadrilateral trade involving the Dutch, the English, the Algonquins along the coast and the Iroquois, uh, the stimulation of wampum production and, and the various, uh, moves that uh, were made that that set up the Pequot War. Now, I'm going to move away uh, to the great, probably disappointment of my listeners. We won't get to the harsh ugliness of the Pequot War for a while because I got to go back and really get into the Massachusetts Bay and the Great Migration, which I haven't done yet. Um, uh, um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then I'll swing back to uh, uh, probably uh, probably the Pequot War. Um, uh, at, at somewhere in there. Um, but I, I tell my own listeners that I follow my muse. So it will often be the case that I'll mm. have an idea for the next week's episode and I'll realize, whoa, I've missed something completely and I'll do that instead and then eventually get around to, to the next thing. But there's always a connection. There's something in that episode you're like, oh, I got to go back. And yes. so there is a trail. It might not exactly be linear, but there is you're, you're patching the it all thing together. I like doing, and I probably do more of than you know, as I described in uh, in, in an episode, sort of the second introduction I did about last April, where I said, "All right, now that I've done this a while, I'm going to reintroduce this." Um, I, I fly. I like to fly at sort of very high altitude and look at what's going on in the world and how that fits together. And then I, mm. I like going down at very low altitude and seeing what, you know, individuals were doing to each other on the ground and how those yeah, connect yeah. rather than sort of call it the textbook level, which I find sort of unsatisfying. Yeah. So, um, uh, dry political, well, and you could just, just kind of, you the can news just of the day it. stuff. I mean, you know, so many surveys I mean, I've mm. got, I've got 13 surveys of American history and I sort of go through and see how each of them treated a thing. And it's usually a paragraph or two. And then you realize there's something f way below 
Yeah. So yeah. anyway, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I know. Like, like um, in the textbooks, they'll often mention, especially in New Netherland, like the system of patroon ships, and they'll just say the Dutch set up a system of patroon ships to encourage settlement in the New Netherland. But you know, if you actually dig in there, you get on the ground level. The patroon ships weren't no. that successful. There was only one that really lasted, and most of the people in New Netherland didn't come because of these patroons. But yeah, at that middle level, it's kind of like the zone where yeah. lies can live because you can be general. Right. You don't need the specifics. And yet you're not making such a big statement that it's really on anyone's radar to yeah. look it up. Yeah, that's right. So, and again, it's just, just dry. Yeah. It's, it's like you're taking you're not taking a view of the earth. You're just kind of like 150 feet off the ground. You're just looking around. There's not. So it's not a story. So um, and I'm sort of bouncing around. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on this topic. So right now, I, you know, on, on my Twitter account i follow maybe 300 academic historians um you know graduate students sort of twitter active historians and and podcasters and such but there's a lot of anxiety in academic history about the you know plummeting enrollment in history in universities and uh it happens to be a topic about which i have strong but wholly ill-informed opinions um um i i um you know you're in an interesting spot right you're teaching social studies to middle schoolers you're there when it's possible to create real interest in history um you know do you have thoughts on how to get i'll say kids young adults uh enthusiastic about history like if you were if you were you know addressing the american historical association and wanted to tell them you know here's how to get people excited about history what 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 thoughts do you have on that topic well i'm actually just going to derail the conversation because um you're noticing the trend at the higher end where you know in, uh, enrollment is dropping in these history history programs, probably uh, grad school programs, yeah. probably undergrad too, right? But you know, on the other end, especially in New York State, there's been just less social studies content at the elementary school level. So let's go right to the beginning of this story, because uh, teachers are increasingly being being um, they're increasingly being rated, and basically their employment is dependent upon. Three through eight math scores and ELA scores, right? And uh, most elementary teachers are elementary teachers. They're not yeah. subject specific. So if you're in, let's say, near state fifth grade social studies curriculum, you're supposed to kind of learn about the Incans, the Mayans, and the Aztecs. Well, you're a fifth grade teacher. You didn't specialize in history. You're not terribly interested in it. And your teacher assessments are going to be are going. What's going to be calculated into that? is how your students perform on math, on the standardized math tests and the standardized English tests, which is pretty typical yeah. for most districts. What's your incentive to teach social yeah. studies? There's no incentive to teach social I'm just going to answer it for you. There's no incentive, and there's every incentive to take over the time that you would have been using towards social studies on ELA and math. How this trickles into middle school is essentially we have kids showing up with zero yeah. prior knowledge. Like when I was in school... Uh, seventh grade, and you asked me what a teepee was. I would have a general idea what a teepee was. I had a class this year, nobody knew what a teepee was. That piece of information is gone. 
It seems like we would take that for granted. It's gone. It's not there for certain kids, certain segments, gone. So uh, middle school social studies teachers are coming in. When the kids are coming in, we now go like they have zero prior knowledge. Assume they know nothing. We're going to start at ground zero. And so talking at the other end of it, some kids aren't even getting exposed to history until sixth or even seventh grade, depending on the district they're in. Just because of the way yeah. teachers are being assessed. It's a, it's a pressure. It's money. Yep. It's their livelihood. And history gets squeezed out on that end. So it's, it's kind of an uphill battle because they're, they're being taught that English is very important. Math is very important. Science is very important. And then social studies of the core four is kind of like we're the last man out now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just how it is. So... So on the other, I can't even fathom on the other end how to, how to stimulate like a 19-year-old's interest in history. Honestly, throughout my life, and you've probably noticed this, people become more interested in history the more history they have. Yes. The older they get, right? The guy who never liked history, 40 years later, he's the guy who's watching the World War II documentaries on the History Channel well, all the time. Well, that's right. And, and, so. and <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I'm an old guy. I'll be uh, 61 uh, before the end of the year. Put it that way. It's not, that's it not that even way. that old. You're old when you can collect social security. That's the government <laughs> well, says so. You're not there yet. I'll be let's see in around 370 some days I'll be eligible for early election. Who's so, counting? Uh, <laughs> but I, I know uh, I, I know well, enough about the time value of money to not take it early. Uh, in any case, well that so that's yeah. interesting. So so you know perhaps um you know one path out of this is for the movers and shakers in academic history to really make themselves as felt as they can be felt uh, at, at state boards of regents as in New York or, uh, you know, Texas has a famously yep. active uh, program in, in teaching history of a sort. Um, all of yeah, I wonder if that trend with uh, history majors holds true in Texas. Is that true in Texas, too? I that don't, there's been a decline? I don't know. I wonder. I don't know. Um, mm. um but it would be very interesting to uh, your point to see if somebody could do a, a, you know, a longitudinal look and say, OK, is the mix if you look at sort of call it the top 100 undergraduate history departments in the country, is the geographical mix of their majors shifting? I think that would be a super interesting question, which hadn't occurred to me until you asked it. Um, but uh, any uh, academics out there listening to this episode, and uh, someday there will be some, uh, uh, I uh, uh, suggest you take that up because that seems like a, a fantastic idea. Um, you're you're welcoming him. I, I'm somewhat scared of academics. Like I teach middle school. Like. I don't need a doctorate of history listening to me. I'm fine with the crew that, you know, if you're a social studies teacher or you're interested in history, fine. Doctorates of history, like putting their lens over what I'm saying, I don't know. Don't you feel a little... Well, you know, I, I, don't, know. I, I don't, but, the, but I... Um, so my dad was, uh, you know, Ackett. Oh, that's he right. Was he was a history historian. professor. He was in the history department oh. at Iowa for uh, most of his uh, career. Yeah. And then he became a his history bibliographer at Princeton, Harvard PhD, expert on 14th century France. His, his 
All right. So you're not well, intimidated his, by his these second folks. subject. His second subject in in graduate school, you had to have sort of a minor was American history. And uh, yeah. I, you know, um, I, I'm probably doing this in part because of some, you know, he died in 1998, way too young. And I'm probably doing mm. this in some uh, expression of a psychological need to impress him wherever he may be. Uh, but he was uh, well, very uh, open on this topic. He was a huge supporter of popular history, which is not that common uh, uh, then anyway. It was not that common among academic historians. I don't know how it is now. But he, he was, uh, his view was, you know, anybody who gets anyone interested in learning more is getting the job done. And, and uh, he um, uh, recognized full well the criticisms of popular history, and he sort of took the point of view, you know, that would, as I understood it anyway, from my memory of these conversations, that would sort itself out as people learn more and get more educated. The key is to get them interested in the first place. And uh, he was extremely yeah. supportive. I mean, I had a, I was a complete nerd myself. And uh, then in the 1970s, uh, the, 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 the nerdy kids played, Aval you know, war games, Avalon Hill, SPI, these very complex games with die cut counters on maps. And, you know, my dad, uh, um, you know, as a supportive father got interested enough in what I was doing that he uh, basically put together a whole course on military history from medieval ages forward. Uh, and he taught it at Iowa for years and uh, military history. It's very interesting. It, it, military history courses apparently still uh, are heavily enrolled, but they're out of fashion. Nobody, yeah. nobody, no the, university the, department is hiring, or few, few are hiring new PhDs in military history, even though they can fill mm. those classes. Um, this is all, as I understand it, from such deep encounters on Twitter as one might have. So, anyway, you're you're right. It's not it's it's not perceived as as intellectual as other lenses on history you know it it's more of it's seen as like uh more of a layman's kind of history which it isn't but that's but just it, how it, it is lately it, it also leads to other things if you are really mm. interested in military history you know you're going to become interested in the causes of war and the causes of war are usually deeply rooted in culture politics you know yeah often institutional hard to history explain. complex personalities all things you know uh all things that are uh themselves uh very open to intellectual academic history so anyway mm -hmm. um well there, there's probably some prejudice there might i be. never thought about that might be but yeah you know academic bookworm types grow up in certain environments and then you have a guy come along who's very well learned in, in military history they're not they're like okay well that's you know that's not what i'm learning yeah. about see like a different yeah. world yeah. altogether and i think that there's some some risk that academic departments really like 
any other institutions, they become insular. So they're don't want to mm-hmm. hire people who threaten their underlying assumptions. I think that's true in lots of other institutions, especially cultural ones. But anyway, yeah. so, um, so you've, you've, because you don't proceed chronologically per se, you've done these sort of, uh, I don't want to call them units, but you're a teacher. So they're kind of units. I guess on, it is a unit. On, yeah. you know, New <laughs> France, that. New Netherland, um, the mm. Iroquois bound up with New Netherland. Uh, and, and, and now you're dipping your toe into Norumbega, New England, the Dawnland, all these things yeah. you might call it. Um, um, you know, can you give us some uh, sense of, uh, you know, where you're going to go with uh, sort of the New England story? You're, you've you're more mapped out than i am i you know you ask me where i'm gonna go and i'm like oh i don't know you know (laughs) yeah i i think i have like 10 years mapped out but but the the point of that is there's an exit point this is not an this is not going to do this forever probably the kingdom of hawaii and i'm done you know what i mean there's going to be a point where it's like this is a complete body of work that i can sit back and look at it's complete it's that sense of okay it is done Kind of like accountants kind of have that, where they, they have everything balanced perfectly, and they could step back, and it's finished. So yeah, there is a framework here. But basically, yeah, season one went up to 1663, yep. 64, where the English took over New Netherland. And with that, is ended uh, the Iroquois story for now. And New Sweden fell into New Netherland before that point. So all three subjects converged to that point, because now the Iroquois would have to try to find an ally in the English, which of course they did. And then the second season was New France all the way up to that same date, that same time, 1663, 64. Very pivotal year. That's why I'm doing it. Because at that point, it becomes a royal colony. It's no longer as a company sanctioned by the crown to operate in this vague area yeah. of the earth. It becomes a whole other thing. And every, everything gets upped at that point. And that's, in, that's true in what was, was New Netherland, what is New England, and what was New France, right? Because the French population, 1663, 64, it was only like 2,500 people, 3,000 people. After the crown takes over, they just start dumping yeah. women off. You know, they start bringing over uh, daughters of the king, and so that's why I'm ending at that time because it really is the ending of a chapter for New Netherland, quite literally. For the Iroquois, it's a shift. For New France, it's a it's a ramp up. So we're gonna end there. Now I'm over in New England. I'm trying to get that side of the story, and we'll actually go right into the um, 18th century with East and West Jersey. And that'll kind of round off this season. So I'm slowly inching forward chronologically, but I'm also spreading out. Being like, oh, I'm kind of doing what you're doing, where I'm like, yeah, but what about their side of the story? Now let's get them up to the date where I ended this side. Okay, now let's go over here and get this side. And basically, it'll run based on when did you fold into the United States or the entity that would become the United States, like yep. the British colonies. So New Netherland folds in pretty early. So they're going to be season one. The Iroquois are going to be around for a long time. They're just part of the story. Um, New England, of course, they're going uh, New Haven and this runaway colony of Ligonia and President John Scott, who tried to set up his own little colony uh, in Long Island. All these things are going to fold into New England pretty early. So they're going to come up now. The the New England Confederacy, that's going to fall apart. The Dominion of New England, that doesn't last very long. That's all 17th century. So that that it's its time because that's going to fold into the main British colonies that every school child knows, 13 colonies, pretty early. So that has to be addressed now. 
And then from there, I'm going to move to the south, to Spanish Florida, and kind of move that way till we get to Russian Alaska, we get to Hawaii. So there is a chronological nature to it. You got Louisiana, to it. Yeah. you got Texas. Yeah, I know. It's, know, it's a lot. Got... <laughs> but there is an end point. Like, if I want to jump off, I know where I can yeah. jump off, you know? Like, there is definitely a spot where I'm like, it is complete. And I can sit back and look at it and then come up with a new hobby. I don't know. Maybe I'll uh, try out for the NBA or something. I forgot what well, the question I mean, was. I you asked. asked you where, I asked you, uh, where, where you, where you thought. So, all right. So, oh, yeah. So you have, uh, well, why don't, why don't you finish the thoughts on, uh, on where you're going to go with New England, maybe? Yeah. So, yeah, this current season, yeah, it's covering New England basically up until um, we, it's going to cover New England and really uh, what social studies teachers would call the middle colony area. So, New Netherland has fallen apart. We're going to cover New England and all the strange entities that existed there. And it's eventual spread of uh, English Dominion down right to the border of the southern colonies. So we'll probably end on east and west Jersey. We'll probably be the end. Unless I want to use the Dominion of New England as a way to wrap it up. Are we so that, that's kind King of the Phillip's end of it. War or, uh... Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best with narrating military history, especially like King Philip's War. It was so chaotic and there were so many yeah. little skirmishes. It's hard to line it all up without just sounding like you're reading yeah. off a timeline. But yeah, I'm going to try to do King Philip's War from the perspective of the Wampanoag and then maybe from the new uh, Confederation of New England. Try from probably from both sides a little bit. And that's going to be it for King Philip's War. But I'm not going to present it from the point of view of Plymouth or the Massachusetts Bay Company. Okay. So make my little twist. Yeah. Like what was uh, Pometicomet, uh, King Philip, what was his motivations going in? How did he, how really evaluating what happened during the war, yep. how he performed, and of course his demise, and um, basically King Philip has been um, lionized. A lot of authors have written about this recently. Like they've made him out to be yeah. better than he was in many sense. Like originally the colonists were made him out to be better than he was because it's like we defeated this great guy. You know they're propping themselves up, and then previous uh, following generations of Native Americans have also lionized him as a as a figure of resistance. But in reality, he was a human, and he, he did make some mistakes along the way. Obviously, he died in a swamp, you know. Well, one of the things <laughs> that I think is that I always enjoy about listening to your podcast, especially if it's an area that I have covered or have thought about enough to know where yeah. I'm going to go with it, is, um, you know, where there are overlapping stories, I think um, it's so interesting to see how... Um, you know, two similar subjects can be tackled, you know, differently. I, I was just hit by that listening to your uh, episode on Gosnold. And uh, and you had a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know about Gosnold already. But uh, uh, I then went back and listened to the piece I did, which was sort of tied into the run-up to the Popham Sagadahawk settlement. And... Uh, um, yeah. Which, as you can yeah, guess, I'm, yeah. that's where I'm and, headed. <laughs> uh, well, that's an interesting one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna spin you a little bit. So that uh, let's let's talk about that one. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm gonna spin you, but I I've already expressed my opinion on this, which is that um, mm -hmm. you know uh, the historiography of that is super interesting. Um, um, if you go back and I read like uh, Thayer's book on it, which was the first thing out in the 
late 19th century and you can get a lot of this stuff on Amazon, century, which is just yeah. awesome. They just print it up for you now. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the narrative around that for a long time, uh, was that the Popham colony failed because the leadership essentially evaporated. That is, they actually got through yeah. that first winter with only a two, three, four people dying, which was amazing considering yeah. the general mortality on, you know, in these settlements, including up north. I mean, you know, they, there was a ton of dying on St. Croix Island where Champlain was. Yeah. That's right. The French, uh, Montreal that first yeah. year, and, 1608 and, the, and the a nine. Popham yeah. The colonists got through with amazingly low mortality and they built a penis, yeah. right? They managed to build an entire penis and sail yeah. it back to England. Okay. You know, and if you think about the effort involved to do that and they loaded it up with furs they'd traded for and the whole thing. But the issue was mm -hmm. the leadership vanished, you know, the funding, uh, you yeah. know, uh, died then, then, um, uh, and I'm, I'm now going to forget the name cause I lack your memory. Uh, but, but there's a, Pop, yeah, Popham, Popham died, died, right? It was uh, the guy on the ground, Popham George died, Popham. So the funding yeah. went away. And then uh, Raleigh Gilbert, I guess, who was in charge, you know, he learned that he, he came into yeah. his family lands and he's like, well, I got... His, yeah, his brother died now and now charge he's... Yeah. the estate That's what it back was. In, in England. And so he's got to go back. And everyone sort of just said, well, yeah. you know, if none of the people who are organize this or sticking around, we're not going to stick around. And they left. And so the idea, uh, you know, in a lot of the early accounts well into the 20th century was that it was basically the leadership failed, you know, that it lacked the yeah. stamina that, for example, the leadership in Virginia had or the total commitment that the pilgrims had. Right. Um, but well, that's not your view? No, that is my view, you don't actually. Take but the, the recent historiography oh, okay. goes back and it looks at what all these guys like Gosnold and Pring did, especially Martin mm. Pring, who, you know, to really sort of, you know, anger and wreck the relations with the Indians in the area. And 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's a bunch of relatively recent history that says, no, 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 the reason why the colony failed is because, you know, all these earlier guys went in and, you know, Pring six is, is two Mastiffs, fool and gallant. In my mm. opinion, the first two dogs in American history for whom we know the names. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, so the recent historiography, if you go to the journal articles, it sort of says, no, no, it's because, you know, these early explorers spoiled the relations with the Indians and that made it impossible for the Popham colony to succeed. And I just think that is presentism. I don't think that's actually the case. I think the original view that the leadership vanished has to be the explanation. But maybe that's because I spent my life in big organizations corporations leading them and i just have a view that you know mm. if the leadership gives up everyone else will too and that's as common an explanation for failure in business and in history as anywhere uh, so i think that that's an example yeah. of the old historiography being correct and the new historiography sort of straining to come up with an explanation that'll be sort of 
you know, more, yeah. you know, popular to the modern ear, but maybe I'm wrong. You know. No, I think there's some truth there. I think the, the reason that, oh, it was the abandonment, because, yeah, they brought back some natives that were kidnapped previously, and they were to be the guides and help, you know, ingrain the Popham colonists with the natives in current-day Maine. But at a certain point, they lead them on for a while, and then they just kind of disappear. There, I mean, a secondary reason is, yeah, the, the natives in the area kind of withdrew communication and support. But... You're right. Pop the colony wasn't around long enough right. for that to play out. Given three, four years of la- of you know lack of cooperation with the natives or downright warfare, and and then it falls apart. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, it was it was you know them not being able to get along with the natives. But the colony was so short lived, and it was so clear why they decided to pack up and leave that the native explanation would be secondary or even tertiary. It's not, and, it's and not in the one running. one of the things we've seen again and again is that, you know, that, that local tribes, wherever they were, didn't have a static mm-hmm. view. They would very practically yeah. adjust. So, you know, there'd be some conflict. Um, it would be very easy for them to decide they hate the English, but they were also super practical. And they knew that, for example, having steel knives and hatchets was like a huge improvement, yep. not only in their military advantage, but in their quality of life. You know, I mean, these implements were just tremendously valuable to their material well-being. And so they would trade for them. Mm-hmm. And uh Anyway, the the whole topic to me is uh is very so. Let me ask a question. Uh, this is a this is a very uh, off the wall, but it's one of my uh, favorite. So okay. So all right. So New Netherland, New New France. Um um. Now you've done the work anyway. We haven't heard the output yet, but the work on New England. <laughs> so if you were to organize a pub crawl with a universal yeah. translator. Right. So, you know, pub crawl with a Star Trek universal translator of three. Oh, boy. Or, OK. Three or, high concept. or five, you know, figures from the areas you've looked upon so far. You know, who would you like to, you know, see in conversation? Oh, my goodness. Well, one guy who, who I just heard you talking about on a podcast was a uh, Walter Van Twiller. Who is a n- notorious drunk? I believe, if I'm remembering right, yeah. notorious drunk, and almost set uh, Fort Amsterdam on fire because there was some sort of argument, and he ended it with cannon fire indoors. You got to bring that guy. Okay. That's your your Chris Farley, your Burt right, Kreischer. I got to dig in more. Is that of, in, of history? Is that in short book somewhere, or is that where do you, where do you get that story? I don't right. know. I don't know. I drop yeah. a subject hard, but I think that was Walter uh, Van Twiller. Or was it Keith? Oh, now I'm getting confused. No, I think it was Van Twiller because yeah. Twiller was the drinker. Right. I gotta dig. I gotta dig in. Yeah, All I'm right. pretty sure. Yeah. So you gotta have a you yeah. gotta bring a party animal, right? And then and then I would almost say Peter Stuyvesant, but because he's got a peg leg, he's got this whole pirate aesthetic going on. But uh, Stuyvesant seems a little little yeah. irritable, right? He seems like a guy who would who would start hitting you if yeah. he didn't like what you said. A little little Andrew Jackson like yeah. in some ways. So I don't know if I would bring him along. But I would definitely oh on, on this season I I'd bring King Philip yeah that would be interesting yeah we got to bring a native yeah let's bring King Philip see what yeah. he's all about and then um 
I, I was I was gonna say Anne Hutchinson because she was just so she she just bothered people yeah. so much. She either bothered people so much or people just fell in love with the things she was saying. And um, she's very well known for having these little meetings, these little post-church service meetings at her house, and people would just be enthralled yeah. with her, men and women. And I think that should that be probably the third person. Although mixing all three, I don't know. I don't know how that would go over, but it would be uh, an interesting pub crawl. If we could stick to drinking and uh, light conversation, interesting. Anne Hutchinson, Pamita Komet, and Van Twiller. Okay. So I don't Let's know. do it. What, what well, are you going to do? I don't now know, it's your turn. I know who Anne Hutchinson was, but I don't know well yet because, yeah. as I always say, not there yet. Um, uh, well, you're going to do the Massachusetts Bay Colony, you said. So you're going to you're going to getting into Hutchinson, and I think my my it. big, yeah. I think my fan, from, I, I think my uh, hero from that period is going to turn out to be Roger Williams, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, um, no, uh, but I think that from uh, the territory that I have uh, covered, um, if, if I could, you know, have open conversation, universal translator, uh, my three would be actually um, uh, Champlain, um, uh, oh, John one. Smith, and and yeah. um, probably Opakankana. Uh, from uh, the the Powhatan Conf Confederacy, Powhatan. Um, yeah. Partly because I desperately want to know the answer to this mystery. What what was John Don Lewis? Luis? Uh, uh, which, <laughs> John Luis, yeah. Um, it's a it's that's a, a good it's one. Just a oh, huge you beat me. So, it seems to me though that that an open conversation, and maybe you toss in Massasoit. Uh, but, you know, Opakankana, mm -hmm. Massasoit, John Smith and Champlain talking about, OK, you know, you know, you know, how, how should we have done this differently? Uh, you know, how did the other, you know, the other guys mess up? Um, it, this is a family podcast, so I'm trying to censor myself. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you, you have the editing yeah. button, so. You have endless uh, time to censor yourself. You know, to me, to me, that would be like a fascinating uh, conversation. Uh, I got this idea because yeah. uh, uh, of one of the people I follow on Twitter, who's a, uh, uh, I, I don't know, the handle Tudor historian or something like that, said, you know, all right, mm -hmm. if you could have three people from the Tudor era to dinner, who would they be? And you know, it. it my listeners will not be surprised to hear they would be Francis Drake would be on top of the list, Elizabeth I, and then yeah. her chief scientist, John D., uh, who coined the term British Empire and uh, uh, you know, sort of knew everything. Um, uh, you know, I thought mm -hmm. that was a great answer for Tudor England uh, uh, conversation. It is. You, you just got to hope that they have any interest in you because you, you had three people who probably could talk to each other forever. And then yeah, be like, no, who's this right. guy I'd, I'd over be here? I'd be actually happy to just uh, sit back and to listen, listen, especially if, uh, especially if, um, uh, especially if I could uh, uh, have the mic open and be recording it. Uh, that that would be that would be a time yeah. travel bit of gold. Um, so, um, 
Do you hear? Do you hear from your listeners? Like, what, you know, is that is 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 that fun for you? What do you what do you get from them? Well, so yeah, I guess I mean because I started doing uh, episodes for the season three, and then it's been like six months because I got a new job, and I'm I'm really inv- I really like this job, yeah. and I want to yeah. keep it. So I've been I've been really focusing on it, and then every now and then I'll get like things that are just bordering on harassment. Just yeah. like, where is it? I need it. Like these like angry people. It's like. Just there's a thousand other things yeah. you could be doing right yeah. now, dude. So um, I do. I do. I like hearing from other like social studies teachers. Sometimes they uh, hit me up for different lesson plans and things like that. Or, or um, where did you get that kind of stuff? I do like getting corrected because I learned me from too. the corrections or people who'd like add a little things like this Gosnold episode. We just talked about how I, I don't like a, an episode that is missing something where there's a corner that I didn't see. This Gosnold episode, somebody uh, brought up Shakespeare. It was a Twitter comment at, under yeah. the episode I posted. And I forgot. It just popped in my head that some people some people think that the uh, Gosnold expedition and the reports of it helped to shape Shakespeare's knowledge of the New World for his play The Tempest. But it's a theory. But it was just one little thing that was really interesting. I well, didn't put it in the Tempest episode. The Tempest question is an interesting so, one because yeah. I'd say the most common explanation at least in the popular level is the tempest came from the sea venture wreck uh uh during the uh um third supply of jamestown and that was in 1609 Mm. uh after both gosnell's voyage in 1602 and his death in 1607 uh and i had no idea how to assess this uh, but I was at a a a conference. Um, it was the Heterodox Academy conference in in Denver in June, and I found myself sitting next to a Shakespearean scholar. And uh, wow, okay. we were watching a talk together, and then uh, um, uh, it ended, and we started just chatting a little bit, and I. Uh, uh, didn't miss the opportunity to say, okay, uh, you know, uh, I don't, I don't shoot the breeze with Shakespearean professors of Shakespearean history very often. So I, I need yeah, to know, might as well, you know, was the tempest based on the sea venture wreck in Bermuda? And, uh, okay. and, uh, he said he believed it was and, and sort of, you know, briefly made the case that I didn't have a chance to go any deeper. I'm sure there's people who have all kinds of great counter arguments, but I, I felt like I, yeah, I, I think he's, yeah, it's, it's cause that was 1609. Yeah, well, the wreck was in 1609 and then they got out of it. Um, you know, that was a really, really, that was the, di- that was the really ugly winter in Jamestown. So the people who went to Bermuda almost mm. all lived and um, they ended up they ended up building two pinnaces uh, uh, out of the wreck of the sea venture and with other things. And they uh, almost all survived and they sailed into uh, sailed into Jamestown and couldn't believe how horrible the situation yeah. was. You know, and Bermuda turned out to be paradise. Right. There were no dangerous natives and the. The Spanish had had um, uh, you know a couple generations before released pigs on the island, thinking they could come back and pick them up yeah. at any point. So there were sort of hogs everywhere, and so between the fish 
the birds who the sun was, oh my goodness was, they were just having was, you know yeah. damn close to paradise and uh yeah i'm hearing uh kokomo yeah, by no. the beach boys in my head like they just and then they show up in jamestown was that the the starving time yeah they say that was in jamestown really ugly yeah. winter they had about a 75 percent death rate and um yeah. And uh, all the rest of that. So let me see if I've got other pre-thought through. Um, uh, okay. I think he's right, though, because the Tempest is like 1611. And then Gosnold's, the whole, the, the two accounts of Gosnold's were not really out there. It wasn't just something you'd pick up on a newsstand. Right. But the, the happenings at Jamestown were very, very well, well known. One, one so, of the things that's interesting yeah. about reading this is that... Um, is, you know, it's really hard to get a handle on how widely understood um, these things that are very, uh, figure very prominently for us, how widely Mm -hmm. they were understood at the time. You know, like one of the things I've been trying to figure out is, you know, outside of a small number of sort of, call them elites in London, you know, did anyone in England really know what was going on at Plymouth? You know, now Jamestown, they did because the Virginia Company raised money all over the country uh, through mm-hmm. basically evangelical fundraising and churches. So everyone knew about that effort, and the Virginia Company engaged in a tremendous amount of propaganda. But, but you know. The Pilgrims, I have a feeling that sort of hardly anyone really knew they were there or what they were doing uh, for quite some time. Um, but I don't have a good handle yeah. on that. So uh, listeners out there, if you have any uh, point of view on the topic. So um, uh, so I thought it might be fun to conclude, if you're ready, willing, and able, I one of my uh, sort of favorite episodes because it's so digestible without, you know, listening to 15 prerequisites, uh, is your, uh, (laughs) is your bid on the, um, you know, long-term impact of new Netherland and especially the, 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 no, the impact on our language on American English. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but, uh, I thought if you could share with our listeners, you know, all the things we owe in our uh, in our language to the Dutch uh, in the U.S., uh, that would be a, that would be an interesting treat. Yeah, not only the Dutch, but just the people. Do you want me to focus specifically on the language However stuff? However you want to do. Or However you want to. Where do, do you want to go? It's all, it's all good. Yeah, we can go through the language stuff. Yeah, a lot of the things that you know uh, British people would look at us as being uh, Americanisms, the things that we say that kind of make us stand out as, okay, you're from that side of the Atlantic. Some of them just find their roots in New Netherland. It's just coming over from the Dutch language, not straight from the Netherlands to the U.S., but just from that that leftover New Netherland colony that was absorbed by the British. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, like the word boss. You know, you go over to England, you have yeah. a manager. Boss is, is, is just a uniquely American, and it's a, like a uniquely like New York, New yes. Jersey word. You know, when you think of people yeah. called the boss, that's where they're from, which is former New Netherland. That's not by coincidence. I think the Dutch word is bass. Yeah. I think it's B-A-A-S. They may have, they may have pronounced that's it boss where that comes or something from. like that, though. I don't know. 
Yeah, and it just it'll shift over time, and who know who knows exactly how things were pronounced 300, 400 years ago. Linguists spend endless hours trying to just anticipate what that, or just kind of figure out once once again how things were pronounced way back then. But boss is one that stands out right away. You just think, oh, that's well, that's a very American term. Well, yeah, and it has its roots in New in New Netherland, and and then another even words like yeah. cookie. You know, what I mean, you go over to England, you're eating. You know, you're eating the same thing, but they're going to call it a biscuit. You don't want to eat a biscuit. Well, I want to eat, eat a biscuit cookie. too, actually. Well, but cookie. that's because that's because wow. I live in the South, where the biscuits are actually awesome. <laughs> yeah. Are we talking literal yes. biscuits uh, here, American like biscuit. an American yeah. biscuit? Oh. <laughs> See, and then that, that's the thing. In in America, a biscuit is this big old thing of cooked dough you put yeah. butter on, right? Go over to England, a biscuit could yeah. be some sort of cookie, yeah. some kind of wafer. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, cookie is another word that wanna, ended up coming from the Dutch. Again, not I from like a chocolate chip yeah. cookie. I don't want a chocolate chip biscuit. <laughs> yeah, it sounds awful, right? You you don't want yeah. biscuits and milk. That sounds like work. You don't leave biscuits and milk out for Santa. Santa to yeah. to, to segue right into it. In the English language, the name of this figure who existed in history he was a real figure. Of course, he didn't live at the North Pole and have little midget friends. So. Santa Claus, that's not how you say his name, right? Saint Nicholas. That would be the yep. English pronunciation. But in America and the in the this form of the holiday that we have exported overseas, and it is is just infested everywhere, including the entire month of December here. Santa Claus, that comes from the Dutch Sinterklaas. Klaus being the, you know, a Germanic yep. form of Nicholas, right? And then their form of saint on the front of it. We're not even using the English name of this figure. We're referring, when we say Santa Claus, we're using a derivation of the Dutch name. And then the entire Christmas holiday um, that we have exported to other countries where Christmas is this festive thing with gift giving and lights and it's supposed to be this happy occasion. That finds much of its origins in the Dutch traditions way back in the Netherlands that were exported to New Netherland that were absorbed by the British colonies, so on and Although so forth. I, I would think so, um, um, some of that for us may also come from uh, the many Germans who came here. German, you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's probably a, a lot of bleed a, over there. there. You know, Christmas is a big deal in Germany, famously so. Uh, yeah. So there's probably... So I imagine like North... Yeah, north and north and west Germany, probably yeah. a lot of shared traditions. But I know you go to other places in Germany and they have other figures, you know. They have other Christmas figures and it starts to deviate the further away you go. Because they didn't really homogenize until what the yeah. 19th century kind of came together as made some kind of broad yeah. general culture. So yeah, we we have Santa Claus and even the holiday. I was reading about in the colony of New Haven, um, which we'll be covering. Uh, what their Christmas was like, and it was like nine hours of church service, and then yeah. you go home. <laughs> and it, of course, it's already dark because yeah. it's December. It was a dour. It was sad. It was religious, and it was yeah. serious, right? And then the Dutch come along, and they're giving out goods and things like that. And the traditional story is the English children who eventually moved into the Hudson River Valley and parts of New Jersey were seeing these Dutch kids getting these little gifts and getting all these little treats on Christmas. Meanwhile, they were sitting in church, they're like, they're and like, there you go. Like, There's the spark. Puritan Christmas is bullshit, man. <laughs> it is. It is. And so, I mean, with the Puritans, I mean, by the 18th century, Christmas, the Dutch Christmas has just ingrained itself. And then the Americanization of it and the commercialization of it by the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, we then exported back overseas, including back to merry old England. 
And and so it's it's just been an explosion. And again, these things that we think of as inherently American at their root might actually be more Dutch than anything. So it's just all part of this yeah. melting pot idea. Which I could talk about that. Let's, you want let's to talk, talk about the melting, about the melting pot idea? Pot. Okay. This this notion, and we, and we still sell this to kids in school, that America is a melting pot. Um, if we look at the three different colonial areas, as teachers often set up for their grade school students, New England, the Middle Colonies, and the Southern Colonies, New England is not no. much of a melting pot, right? Especially, I mean, even the Revolution, things are very different than the 17th century when we're just settling. You have a rush of, you have a, a small amount of separatists. You have a, a huge influx of Puritans coming over yeah. during the Great Migration. They kind of start their own congregationalist system. Um, a lot of like a lot of local and even colonial governments like in New Haven were basically centered in the Puritan church. You had to be a church member to even be considered for the government that would follow there from there. And so New England was not a terribly successful melting pot if it ever tried to be. It was very English and very specific brands of English in terms of what your religion could be. The exceptions being like the hinterlands of New Hampshire, Maine and yep. Rhode Island. Right. Not, not a lot of mixing there. And eventually there were, um, of course, there's always Native Americans who are increasingly being pushed to the fringes. And then even in New England, African-American slaves. Not a melting pot. You don't want to be part of that. In the South, do we even right. have to do that one? Do we have to go? We, same thing. Lots of English people. And then um, English people basically uh, using other English people. And then eventually importing African yep. slaves again. And using them, not a melting pot. The middle colonies, however, because the Dutch West India Company had such hard times bringing people to New Netherland, because you mentioned in your last episode of, of your podcast, well, chronologically, I don't know where this one's going to fall, how they, the New Netherlands was going through, uh, the regular Netherlands was going yes. through a golden age. Yeah. People didn't want to leave the Netherlands. And so they took immigrant, anyone who would pledge loyalty to the Dutch West India Company, come on over. So we have the Swedes from um, New Sweden uh, and the Finns with them. But then you also have Danes and you have Dutch people, of course. You have different Germanic peoples. You have French. You have uh, the Walloons. You have the Flemish The Flemish folks. Walloons came over before most of the Dutch did. Um, and you end up with this polyglot culture of many different European groups. But then there also was an African-American influence. And then very good relations with the Native Americans. Uh, the Dutch, you know... Probably the Dutch in the ranking, they did better than the English did as far as having peaceful relations. Um, the French probably did better than them and the Swedes probably did better than them. But uh, what you end up with is in uh, New Amsterdam at one point, I think it was a, a Jesuit priest who was visiting. I could be wrong about this, but they said he heard 18 yes. different languages on the island of Manhattan just on his yes. one visit. And this is a very famous quote. It's by and someone. It exists. I don't know if I'm attributing it right. But that, yeah, that's the melting pot. There New it Amsterdam, is. New Amsterdam so, and, and then New York has uh, never, never yeah. been homogeneous, uh, which is something I think nope. a lot of people uh, in the hinterlands don't understand. New York, New York City has been fundamentally cosmopolitan since the very beginning. And that makes it extremely mm. different from most other American cities. Um, and, and, and it's that difference yep. persists to this day. And, uh, and I think that's, um, uh, that's very, 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 very true. 
Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, that's another, like, thing that we, this is America. We're a melting pot. Well, where did that originate, that the first melting pot we can really point to in, in the United States is probably the colony of New Netherland, which, again, it's something that we have taken on as our identity. We are a melting pot. Well, where did that come from? And where does it still persist today? You think of the most multi, multicultural areas in this country, New York City is, like you said, very high yeah. up on that list. I don't know if it's number one or yeah. not, but it's pretty yeah. close. No, it, it, well, yeah. you know, I think there are other, obviously other American cities now that are profoundly uh, and famously uh, diverse, yeah. but that yeah. was not, um, uh, uh, but that was not always the case uh, in most of those cities. And mm. it was always the case uh, in New York. All right. Well, that's uh, that's very helpful. So yeah. um, uh, this episode's getting a little long in the tooth by the standards of my listeners anyway. Um, <laughs> so um, can you tell us how uh, people can find out about your podcast and all the rest of it? Apart from the obvious ways. Well, obviously, you can always. <laughs> yeah, you can always Google it, but. Um, I, I do I do have a YouTube page because I get like a third of the views I get ended up being through YouTube and I don't do anything visual. So I'll throw in some pictures into the videos. But yeah, you can listen to it on YouTube. But then it's also on pretty much every streaming service except for like Amazon Music. I got to figure out how to get onto there. So apparently I'm missing. Um, I'm, apparently yeah, I'm missing it's doing pretty good. I don't publish on yeah? YouTube and and apparently that's a mistake. So it sounds like that's your experience as well. It's like twenty to thirty, per, well, like twenty-five to thirty to one third of the views are just coming from YouTube. I don't know who these people are. Sometimes they leave comments, and, so, and you know, it's, and and you just put them up so there. So what, do you, what do you put up? Do you put yeah. up just some image, or that is fits with the episode, or? Yeah, I don't go through meticulously because I rant and I go back and forth between subjects. So there's no point in completely trying to pair up the images 100% to what I'm saying. Because sometimes I just start talking about yeah. my wife's cats because yeah. they're just everywhere. And so, and like, you know, what am I going to put up for that? So it's, sometimes I'll just uh, use a map, like a high-res version of a map from that time. And then I'll take little widescreen captures of it. And then I'll just have the camera I'll make an effect, to, like the Ken Burns effect, just kind of have it pan around that map, just yeah. give you a bird's eye view. And that's right, that's I, about I, as much effort I, I, I'm going to put into the that, visuals. Tell me, I uh, I'm I'm sort of uh, missing missing a bet there. Um, yeah, because with podcasts, people kind of have to just know to find it. Whereas on YouTube, there's like you don't have to do any advertising. People just find it. You know, it's part. It's in YouTube. They'll watch a video on something. They're going to watch a video on, you know, they'll watch a video on yeah. Wampum. And then you'll have a video on Wampum. You'll put it in as one of the tags. It's in one of the, the four or five visible suggested videos. And then sometimes you know how YouTube is. They'll just start playing your video, especially if your video ends up in somebody else's playlist. And so there's a natural growth there. Whereas in podcasting, you're kind of in this own little pocket where somebody has to yeah. go history podcasts. And then there's a billion of them. Then the... Your your the subjects of your individual podcast episodes will probably come up more easily in a YouTube search than somebody searching through Spotify. It, it's just weird. And I don't so understand how any of it works. Grab the file from your podcast host. Is that how it, it works? Or 
Maybe they do. I don't do it that way. I, that'd be nice if they did. But basically, I just take the raw audio file and I make a video with it. So I'll load it up in any sort of video editor, ClipChamp. It doesn't really matter because I'm not making them super fancy. And then, yeah, I just put in a number of images or 3D effects or whatever to match the yeah. length of the file. Like sometimes if it's a colony that's just turning into a, a just a, a house fire, I'll literally just have a picture of the nice picturesque colony. And then about, you know, 20 minutes in, it's going to start to rain. I can add a little rain effect. Get the clouds coming in. And then by the end of the episode, I can just put in a little 3D fire. Set the whole place on fire. And that's the end of the episode. And that's kind of it. And if people want to stare at it, they can. But it's an audio yep. podcast. Yep. So that's what All I'm right. selling to them. Well, uh, I got to, you know, I, I feel a little bit like I'm the old guy, like getting advice from the youngins on this one. Because I've had, like, I've, I've, I, I have, as you point out, I, I've got a lot of listeners who I sense are sort of my age, they get my jokes, which require an understanding of popular culture circa 1978, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's and, fine. <laughs> and I get these notes like, well, my son says that you really ought to put it out on YouTube because of the way their AI works to find stuff, you know, anyway, uh, it does seem to just, there's just more people who yeah. happen by it. And it's fine that people your age, like my key demographic based on like Anchor and they shows me it's it's white guys from New York who are 35 years old. White men from New York who are 35 years old. That's me. I am my own demographic. I have no, I have no well, broad appeal. <laughs> but with the subject do, I'm doing, yeah, I I'm not trying think, either. Um, I do think that my, uh, based on my correspondence, um, I think my listenership yeah. skews male, but that requires somebody to like dig around, file, find, and not entirely. I've gotten, you know, I've gotten some of the most, um, and I haven't really talked about this on my podcast, but I guess this is my podcast. I've gotten some amazing emails from people <laughs> like, like, you know, um, some of it's just nice, you know, you know, mm -hmm. um, my kids, listen to this in the car. That's why I keep it clean. Some of it, I got, I got an email from mm. a listener who, um, was just, thanks. He had to, I'm going to obscure the geography, but he had to, his wife was going through chemotherapy and they had to drive 125 oh, miles each way once a week to get to the cancer center where she was being treated and they listened to my podcast and it changed their mood and you know uh he it was just heartfelt and i got another one from a guy whose dad was in the hospital and 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 and, and maybe maybe uh in in permanent decline and and he had suggested that uh his dad listened to it and, and he said that his, his dad would listen to it and fall asleep to the sound of my voice, but that his mom, his mom was oh, sitting there, there listening to it and taking detailed notes, <laughs> you know, in the hospital room. Anyway, I've had a bunch of these things. And, Multiple, yeah. helpful yeah. for both and, people. Uh, I have to say it's, a, it's fine. super uh, super motivating and fun. Well, um, uh, 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 unless there's anything else you want to toss in, I, I want to just really thank you for subjecting yourself to my little experiment here. Uh, and I'm going to see if I, <laughs> I, uh, no problem. see if it comes out. Okay. 
I know this might not come out at all. <laughs> this might just end and never uh, show no, I up think on it, your I, end. Look, I feel then we'll I, have I to do it all over again. To our listeners, so if I can, assuming all the audio files propagate as Riverside promises, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping that, uh, I'll get in it. And, uh, I guess I'll say to the rest of you, um, Merry Christmas and other greetings of the season, uh, for all the ways that, uh, we all celebrate in this country. Thank you in part to the influence of new Netherland. Uh, and, uh, thank you again also for listening to the it's history true. of the Americans podcast. Your emails are very important and, uh, please, uh, tell all your friends about not just the History of the Americans podcast, but the other States of America History podcast on the social propaganda uh, outlet of choice. Uh, and uh, certainly give us both uh, nice reviews on Apple if the spirit moves you. Uh, that helps with the algos. Uh, and otherwise, I'll say, as I always do, until next time. <laughs>